0: and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast. My name is Jesse Mayer. I'll be your host. And last week we started a brand new series titled, What Would Jesus Say? In two and a half weeks, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we thought it would be important to look at what his resurrection actually says to the world. We're going to ask three questions over the next, um, over the three week series, right? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And The first was, what would Jesus say to our society, which was last week. This week, we're talking about what would Jesus say to our political leadership, and then Finally, Easter week, we're talking about what would Jesus say to you? We can't do this without our very own Salty Pastor, Dr. Douglas Peak.
1: Welcome, everybody. I'm so glad you're here today, and I know that many of you are using the Salty Pastor to grow spiritually, and that is really one of the things that is so encouraging to me because I want your faith to grow. I want it to be your faith. I want you to know why you believe what you believe because in the end, the only place where you're going to have meaning and purpose is from within uh, coming from within your own soul. So the more you're at peace with yourself and the more your soul is at peace with God, the more meaning and purpose that you have in life. And also that's where courage comes from, confidence comes from. So I'm just really happy you're joining us. You're part of the Salty Pastor community, and we are going to be growing in our faith and asking tough questions and what God has to say about it.
0: So we're getting closer to the celebration of the resurrection Mm -hmm. Um, the evidence for his resurrection is pretty overwhelming, and any fair-minded person investigating the facts will come to the same conclusion. What we're investigating is what um, what we're investigating uh, about the resurrection of Jesus says to. Uh, various people is kind of mm-hmm. what we're going to be talking about. Yeah. And last week uh, was what does the resurrection of Jesus say to society at large? And this week we're going to be investigating what the resurrection of Jesus says to our political
1: leadership. Oh, my goodness. Politi- politics. I know. We're
0: getting into the politics. What if would we're gonna Jesus get real, say? If Jesus was walking around right now,
1: Salty. what would he say about all these politicians? He probably would just... <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) We're going to find out. We are going to find out today. Well,
0: let's jump into it. I noticed that there are a large number of verses that talk about how we should think and act towards others in political leadership.
1: Yes, and uh, I organized them into various topics so that, because there's quite a few.
0: We need to break it down. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, that's going to be helpful. Uh, We'll be applying many of the principles we studied today on Thursday. So if we don't get into as much application today, then please note that we'll do so on Thursday's podcast, right?
1: Yes, yeah, and I just just cuz there's so many different verses and honestly I wanted to frame these these topics uh according to what Jesus would say. I mean, if he were here today speaking into the culture, just like he spoke into society and culture during the first century, what you know, it's not just what he would say but kind of how he would say it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's important because there's a lot of talking but how you actually do it is yeah, sometimes yeah. half the battle. As yeah, a nonverbal exactly. major in college, <laughs> I will say that. So is you're a, a nonverbal huge...
1: major, meaning you got a, you got a major or you, you graduated from college without ever speaking a word?
0: No, nonverbal is <laughs> body language, intonation, it's basically how yeah. you say things, yeah. everything except for the actual words. Yeah, 90% of you're communication the, is non yes, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs>
1: well, let's get into it. And here's the first principle that I think is really important. It is uh, Jesus, I think, would say to the culture based on his, uh, you know, uh, uh, all the revelation that he has, and based on the scriptures that we're going to read, I think he would say it this way, and he would say, when it comes to you, political leaders, we're called to respect you, even when it's difficult. Because in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes the following, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. In Titus chapter three, verse nine, so a few verses later, he says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So we need to avoid getting involved in, in political squabbles, you know, because we're called to respect political leaders, even if it's tough. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, uh, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So this is uh, Paul writing to Timothy one of his pastoral letters. He wrote these towards the end of his life. And so this is from a guy who had been imprisoned and beaten and uh, whipped and constantly harassed by political authorities. And here he is telling Timothy, pray and intercede with thanksgiving for all people and kings and all who are in high positions. So that's kind of an interesting teaching that he says there. Yeah,
0: that's a lot for someone to... After so, much, after so yeah. much of that kind of, you can almost say abuse, but no, so absolutely. much of that kind of stuff and they're still saying you need to respect, you need to intercede, you need to pray for them.
1: Yeah, it's really quite remarkable. And then, and then probably the most powerful thing about this is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. And remember, Jesus would say to political leaders today, we're called to respect you even when it's difficult. Because look at what he says in verse 17 of the second chapter of 1 Peter. Honor everyone. So I want to emphasize that. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the Emperor. So he makes a direct reference to the Emperor of Rome. Now Peter wrote this to a church that was being persecuted severely. When you read First and Second Peter, it's all about suffering and perseverance and hanging on. Uh, it doesn't take long at all to understand that he wrote his letter to the churches to help them navigate these really difficult persecutions that were going on, either by Jewish leadership or by Roman leadership. And so I think it's really important to note that even in the midst of injustice, he says, you must continue to honor, you must love, you must fear God and honor the emperor. So I think this is really an important fact and kind of leads me real quick to talk about something for a moment that's going on in the American church. And that is on the one hand, we should expect that people in our society, we should expect that our society at large is always going to have, particularly in America and the way it's designed, we're always going to have ideologies and groups of people who push ideologies that attack the Christian faith. Uh, I believe It's evident throughout history, but also based on what people are actually saying today, who are leaders of these various movements that are existing and thriving within America, it is their design purpose to remove Christianity and all of its influence in order to achieve their political means. So they see the church as an enemy, and we see Mm. this quite often. So we should fully expect to be persecuted by people who are not part of God's kingdom. And they, you know, they, as Paul says, these people are haters of God. And so they're going to hate the people of God. And Jesus Christ himself said, they're going to hate you because they hate me. And so we should fully expect that. But there's something else going on in the church in America today, which I think is fascinating. And that is, there are more pastors over the age of 60. I'm not 60, I'm in my mid-50s. But there are more people who are pastoring over the age of 60 than there are under the age of 30. Mm. Think about that for a moment. So there are a lot more people who are older in the pastorate than there are younger. And that's because fewer and fewer people are wanting to enter into the ministry in America. Only 10% of pastors uh, end up staying in the ministry once they go into it over the course of their life. So I'm in of, you know, of, a a group of 10%. You know, I started out in the ministry 34, 35 years ago in the full-time ministry and I've stayed in it and now I'm such a salty old dog it doesn't really matter. (laughs) I don't know who calls you that. That doesn't sound right. (laughs) Who said that? Who said that? But uh, I think one of the things that there's all kinds of reasons for this and one of the main reasons is because our society attacks pastors, denigrates pastors and is trying to dishonor Pastors at every way, shape, and form. So, obviously, if a young person is influenced by culture in any way, shape, or form, they're not going to say, Hey, I want to be a pastor because society takes a really dim view of pastors today, Uh, particularly our media, news media, all that kind of stuff. Um, The second thing, though, that I think is important to note is this even the people who are in the family of God dishonor pastors all the time. Now, I'm not trying to make this about me. I'm not trying to complain or whine. I'm just trying to tell you that it is really difficult for pastors to stay in the ministry because there is a group of people in every church that are pastor killers. They're people that constantly criticize, they denigrate, they dishonor their pastoral leadership, whether it's a volunteer elder, whether it's a small group leader, or it's all this. And what people do is they speak out against their pastors, they denigrate them. Uh, if they disagree with them, instead of saying, I, I'm going to honor and respect the position that God has called you to, even though you may be wrong, they don't do that anymore. They insult your character. They denigrate your family. They spread rumors about you in the community. I mean, I, I can't tell you all the stuff that's been said about me in Boise, Idaho over the years from people who are angry and upset and um over just really insignificant things
0: and most of them have never come and talked to you face to face about these things they just go off and yeah and
1: spread rumors and, spread rumors and say things and attack upset. and and so if you're a young person and you see that it's like i don't want to be a pastor and here's here's another fact is that why are preachers kids and missionary kids tend to be uh, stereotyped as rejecting God, rejecting the church, and rejecting all that, you know?
0: Probably because they see what their parents have to go through in order to be in the ministry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. One of the greatest uh, glories uh, of my uh, my life, uh, I don't know if it's glory, I guess my biggest flex— Is that, that's,
0: that's a, that's a pretty modern term. So my biggest
1: flex right now is that all of my kids are believers and strong believers and they love church. And so, uh, that's a testimony to foothills and the Mm -hmm. eldership over the years. The eldership so has always treated my kids with respect and honor, no matter what was going on. And, and so that's a testimony to them. But what's really interesting is uh, preachers' kids and missionary kids have these reputations because of that. There's probably a lot more variables. I'm not trying to say they don't exist, but I think that's one of them. But also, very few preachers' kids go into the ministry.
0: And Why is that? Probably because <laughs> well, of the same reasons? Same reason, yeah. Just so hard and they see that, that yeah, stress. Yeah,
1: and, and sometimes maybe parents, you know, subconsciously steer them away from that, you know, because they want their kids to do well, so... So when Peter says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the emperor, it's not just a command for us to honor, you know, like let's say in America today, honor uh, political leaders that we think are ungodly and doing even what we would consider evil things. And they they do immoral or unethical things that doesn't give us permission to dishonor. Now, we, we'll dig into that on Thursday, what that exactly means. But Peter is telling the followers of Jesus to honor the people who are persecuting them. So let's let that sink in. And because if we can't do it with those leaders out there, then how in the world are we going to do it in our own family of God when we get upset?
0: Right. So what's kind of the next principle of Scripture that the Scriptures teach in regards to how we should be um, engaging or what would jesus say to the political leaders
1: well i think um, these are the all from the gospels they're from matthew and john these are quotes of jesus And I would summate it this way, is that Jesus would look at our political leaders, you know, let's say he was called before Congress and they asked him to testify. And they say, do you swear to tell the whole truth, you know, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And he would say, I commit to myself to tell the whole truth. (laughs) And, um, but this is what he would say. I want all of you to know this, our citizenship is first and foremost in heaven. Don't believe we live in fear of you or that you have complete control over us because we are citizens of heaven first. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus said the following words, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, but I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So our citizenship is in the kingdom of God, and it is not of this world. Number two, John 19, Jesus says to, uh, this is to Pilate, who is talking about judging him. Mm -hmm. And he says, you have no authority over me at all, unless it has been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater, greater sin. So he's talking about Judas there. But basically what he's saying is, look, Pontius Pilate, King Herod, you guys, you have no authority over me. Finally, in Matthew 22, Jesus says the following, Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So they ask Jesus this question.
0: This is when they're trying to trap him. They're trying to
1: trap him. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test? You are hypocrites. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So I think Jesus, if he were in a Senate committee testifying, he would say, Our citizenship is in heaven first. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist on this world. That's very important. But it's not of this world. So it's not under the authority and control of this world or the evil one who has influence in this world. And finally, just because you can kill the body, you know, or imprison the body or torture the body, you don't have control over the soul or the spirit. And so I think it's really important that our political leaders know that when it comes to the people of God is that our citizens and loyalties are first to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And that's what allows us to be calm, peaceful, cool, collected, and even honor you when we disagree with you in a very significant way.
0: So once we've established the principle that our citizenship is in heaven, then how does this change our attitude towards government um, or our, our our how we interact with it?
1: Well, that's that's really a great question because one of the big biblical passages that people have been talking a lot about over the course of COVID, and that is, people would come out, governments would institute some very restrictive, uh, things. And so people brought this verse up over and over again to try to determine whether we should comply or not. And it's in Romans chapter 13. And this is where Paul is writing. And he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So we live in a country and we should s- subject ourselves. We can't say that, you know, Hey, I'm a free citizen from this. I don't know if you're, you, maybe those of you listening are not, uh, uh in um aware of what is known as the sovereign citizen movement and the so- sovereign citizen movement rejects any and all government agencies and authorities because they say the constitution doesn't give government any rights over them. And so Paul is saying that well there's a constitution and there's a form of government and you are subjected to that, okay? So you have to be subject to that. So the next question is well what does that exactly mean? Mm-hmm. Right? Is it just blind acceptance, or is there something else going on? He goes, and he kind of qualifies it. He says, there's no authority except from God. Oh, okay, so that's the first qualifier, is that these people um, must be acting within the parameters that God has set. Now, can people operate outside the parameters of God on this world? Well, the answer to that is yes, they can, and we call that evil. So that is possible. And then there are those that exist that have been instituted by God. So there's some governmental systems that God actually instituted. The ancient Jewish uh, ruler or leadership was that way. The kings that that he anointed in the Old Testament. And I, I think here is where it's really important to understand how America might fit in this passage of Scripture here because what happened is our forefathers said from uh, they were steeped in the biblical principles. And so they tried to set up a government that reflected the values and the principles of the New Testament as best that they could. And so we know that that was their goal. That's why we say the Judeo-Christian ethic, And so, so is it instituted by God? And that's where, you know, a lot of our songs, you know, God bless America, you know, those types of things come from because, Hey, our government is different than let's say communism or socialism, or even the divine right of Kings and monarchies. And then it goes on to say this, therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So here's another qualifier in that rulers are trying to uh, enforce good content, uh, conduct, and they're supposed to punish evil content, uh, conduct. So when you have no fear of the one who is in authority, he goes on to say, then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. And so what he's saying is that, you know, you, you can't be a licentious and you kind of go out and do all these evil and moral things and then expect not to be punished. By the government, because even if the government is wrong, if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll notice is that God used Babylon to 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 bring about His judgment on the violation of the covenant of the Jews. Right. So right. the Babylonians came in and put them to the sword and enslaved them. And now I'm not saying that that uh, that. If that happens, we should just accept that. But what I am saying is that Paul teaches is that even when government is operating in an unethical way, that doesn't mean that God still can't bring out his will according to it. So he goes on to say this. He, um, uh, he says he, the, this ruler or this person can be a servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So this is an important thing is what he's saying is, is this what Jesus would say in that committee? He says, look, we believe in government. Human governments need to exist, but they are tools that God uses, and we respect the tool. So if we can improve the tool, change the tool, we should do that at every step of the way. If the tool gives rights to its citizens, then the citizens should maximize those rights within the context of that. We respect the tool. But when the tool is evil, like communism, and it is led by evil ideologies, then I believe it is not a tool of God, it's a tool of Satan. Now you have to be very careful in how you come to that. You have to rationally, biblically come to that conclusion, and then stand in opposition to it.
0: So, they're great. These are great biblical principles, but how how would you kind of cap them all off? What's the defining principle over all of it?
1: Well, yeah. If if we were to have one overriding principle that every of these other principles is, and I could just see Jesus sitting in the Senate, you know, uh, room, whatever conference room saying this and it's exactly what Peter told the Sanhedrin when they said you cannot preach the name of Jesus anymore and Peter looked at them in the eye in Acts chapter 5 verse 29 it says but Peter and the apostles answered we must obey God rather than men and i think that's it is our citizenship is in heaven with God we are called to obey God first. And so when something is overtly evil, then we should stand in opposition to it regardless of the outcome.
0: I think that's really powerful. I also, just going back just a little bit, I think it was really strong to say, you know, at no point does Jesus say, you know, just burn the whole government down. Just throw it all out if you mm-hmm. don't like something or something or they're not doing exactly what the Bible says. You have to really process it and make sure that, you know, the Bible is is standing, you know, you're, you're not just throwing it out. You're not using the postmodern right. mindset of, oh, they messed up and they're not doing everything perfect and they're doing yeah. these things. We got to just throw it all out and started all over kind yeah. of a thing. Don't be um, a
1: deconstructionist.
0: Yeah. Don't be a deconstructionist. That's not right. our way. That's not our way. Because uh, um, we
1: want that's, see, that's an excellent point. And one of the things that I think is important with these principles is, is that if Jesus were then to turn around and talk to us sitting in the gallery, listening to him testify, he, I think this is what he would say to us. And he'd say, first and foremost, put all your faith, all your trust in me. Do that first. Because that is going to give you clarity of thought. It's going to give you a clarity of reason. It's going to give you peace. (laughs) It's going to give you peace. And so Satan can't, because what Satan does today is sometimes our government does stuff and we look at it, you know, and some people feel like, you know, when an administration changes, a lot of the people in the administration um, have stated publicly that they are critical of Christianity. They're critical of religion. They're critical of people of faith. And so these people say stuff and do stuff that tries to destroy the church or undermine the church or undermine people of God or, or persecute people of God, you know, get them fired or canceled or whatever. And so I completely understand when that just, you know, this is America, you can't do that. And it just, it really makes you angry and upset. But here's the key is Jesus would say, put your faith in me first so that you're at peace. Because if you get angry and hateful and bitter about what's going on, you're playing Satan's game now. And it says in Ephesians, Paul wrote, Paul wrote, the anger of men does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So I think the second thing Jesus would tell us is this, is put your faith in me. And second of all, figure out the right thing to do. Okay. Figure out the right biblical principle labor over it, fast over it, pray over it, figure the right biblical principle first. And then he would say, and then figure out the right way to do it. You know, do it with honor and respect, be strong, be willing to suffer the persecution for standing for righteousness, Uh, uh, defend your family when you need to or must to in whatever way you can. But remember, there is, you gotta know what to do first uh the right thing to do. And then you got to think about the right way to go about doing it.
0: Well, and I think he would also say, I mean, going along with that first principle of yeah. put your faith in me, it's don't put your faith in these guys. Like <laughs> they're men, they're broken. They make mistakes. Yeah. They're not here. They're not your savior. Mm-hmm. I am. So don't, don't go to go up in arms over, you know, a slight against your favorite political leader if Correct. that's, you know, just because something may not be going right in the news for them that day, it's they're not going to make you happy. They're not going to give you peace. They're not going to save this country in any form or format. They yeah. don't have the ability. They're they're flawed people and the system mm-hmm. is flawed. That The only person that can really save us and save this country is... Jesus. Yeah,
1: and 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 I've said this before. The the most important thing that we can do as a church is we can go out, find one other person, or I call it the principle of five, five, five other people that need to meet Jesus, and disciple those people, uh, minister to those people, get that list of five going in your own life, and then you can leave, let them you know marinate on these biblical principles, and then you know if. If you look at just here in the Treasure Valley, you know, there's about 750 to 800,000 people who live here now because it's growing so rapidly. And that is, let's just say off the top of our head, there's, you know, 50,000 people that are devoted followers of Christ in the Treasure Valley right now. With those 250,000 people went out and got five people, the entire Treasure Valley would turn to Christ. Right. Right. Boom. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. And how long would it take for you to love five people over the course of two years to lead them to Christ? I bet your, I bet your influence in their lives would go super high. And that's, and that's really important because Jesus said this, he said, they're going to know you're my disciple by your love for one another. Mm -hmm. So when you go out and you start loving people, discipling them and encouraging them and meeting with them, I mean, the entire Treasure Valley could be Christianized in two years if every devoted follower of Christ discipled five other people.
0: That's awesome. Well, we are out of time for today. Um, We're going to talk more about this on Thursday, about um, how these principles apply and how we can see them enacted um, in the modern day. And then you're obviously preaching on Sunday, um, and you're going to tie it all together. So we're really excited for this week. I think it's going to be a great week to be tuning in and getting salty with Dr. Douglas Peaks. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you on Thursday.
1: Blessings, everyone.